The crisis in Palestine, the genocide, is the breaking of another seal of collective consciousness, like Black Lives Matter, COVID-19, climate crisis. It is a ripple in global awareness of great unconscious suffering made conscious. Of the 20,000 people killed in Gaza, half are children. All are human. The death of a child on the other side of the world affects all of us. It affects the whole world. And hopefully their martyrdom will free us all from the nationalist dehumanization that makes us feel that the lives of our children are worth more than others on the other side of the world. This isn't just about Palestine. This is about all of us. This is about what we will collectively tolerate being done to our own species, to our brothers and sisters, to the children. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. The old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. Okay, the new normal, the new, new normal, the new, 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 new normal. A barrage of horrors that uh, are so rapid and so consistent and so fresh that we have even just become accustomed to them. Every day, it seems like there's a new horrible thing in the news, and we just immediately adapt to it, become it, and that's not normal. I just want to say real quick, none of this that we're going through is normal. And so with that in mind, I'd like to introduce today's excellent guest, the great Daniel Mate, co-author of the brilliant book, The Myth of Normal, with his father, Gabor Mate. Uh, Daniel is a mental chiropractor, which is uh, a sort of practitioner that comes into people's lives and shifts their perspective and helps them realign what's going on in the world. So Daniel and I met uh, in the trenches of Instagram comment threads debating about the Israel-Palestine situation. That's the, the abnormality that's on everybody's mind today. So I think that's a great place to get started to explore the territory of abnormality that we consider normal. So Daniel, uh, why don't you give us a little adjustment and alignment on what's going on with the situation that's just blowing up all over everybody's feeds? Well, thank you for having me and thanks for the invitation. I guess I can't well, let me put it in positive terms. What's required for me to give a, a realignment or an adjustment is to know where we're starting and what our intention is. Because I don't have the objective truth. I don't, I'm not a cult leader. I'm not here to say now, everyone, wherever you're starting from, you must adjust your, uh, you know, your, your views this way. So where are we starting from? What what would we what would we want to adjust for people? Where do you think people are starting from? And 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 what are we intending to get? Where are we intending to get? Is it clarity? Is it peace of mind? Is it some kind of coherence? 
Like what are the, what's the stuckness? Cause I always start from where are you stuck when I walk with clients, which is my method of delivery for the mental chiropractic. My first question is where are you stuck? My next question is what's your intention? And from there we can make the desired adjustment. I think uh, I speak for nearly everyone when I say, I think uh, when it comes to Gaza, most of us are just stuck on the sheer carnage. And, and then of course our minds go to places like how could we be capable of such atrocities, humans who are also so capable of wondrous, benevolent, inspiring things. And that's pretty fundamental, I guess. But to start with being stuck on the sheer carnage and trying to wrap our head around nearly imperceivable and nearly in just, I can't even articulate it. It, 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 I have to try to not tear up when I think about the news. Like I'm so fortunate. First of all, my adjustment would be, why do you have to try not to tear up? Why not tear up? Okay. And I love that because just the other day I was giving the piece of advice to someone. If listening to that song, because they were saying this song always makes me tear up and want to fall apart. And I told them, then fall apart. That's what your nervous system's telling you to do. You need to fall apart in order to see the pieces objectively and separately and be able to put yourself back together in a way that you can move on and function. Yeah. well, But my- yet I have a hard time taking that advice. Well, don't we all have a hard time taking our own advice? And that's the that's classic. Um, one of my favorite writers and teachers, and I consider him a mentor and a friend, is named Stephen Jenkinson. He's a Canadian writer who's written a lot about death and dying and elderhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's on tour with a musician named Gregory Hoskins, and they call their show Nights of Grief and Mystery. And Stephen often says, heartbreak is a skill. He would be an excellent podcast guest, by the way. Um, heartbreak is a skill. And in these days, in these times of trouble, it's a mandatory one. So we, you know, we don't do ourselves any favors in terms of trying to have a coherent view when we try to push the tears away. And I do it too. Right. You know, I keep my tears at bay with being wordy and clever and kind of glib sometimes. And you see me on Instagram or especially Twitter, you know, humor and dark irony is like one of my go-tos. Now that that can be bracing and medicinal in certain dosages, but it can also be a kind of um, in like a kind of receptor blocker for the, the deeper pain and helplessness that we all feel watching this. I mean, one of the things that makes this carnage so horrible is that we're actually, excuse me, we're actually seeing it. There's been carnage in other conflicts, but we're watching this in real time in a tiny strip of land, just utter destruction on the one hand. And in real time, we're watching the gloating, boasting, uh, apologetics, denial, and uh, bluster, and frankly, psychotic messaging coming from the perpetrator and gaslighting and everything, you know? So it's, there's a kind of nightmare horror show, like in, in a, in a horror movie or in a dystopian fantasy or science fiction movie, everything is right out in the open and you still can't do anything about it. Okay. So I think that the, uh, the first alignment that I think a lot of people really need, I think all of us kind of need it is to push through the fog of it's too complicated. Mm. And so I know you have actually experienced both sides of this in a very real way. And so I, I really, I, I, we, we met in a common thread of somebody who was really taking this kind of pseudo enlightened, like, oh, it's so complicated. You know, a lot of what aboutism, a lot of uh, basically just saying like, oh, it's so complicated. We can't really configure it. And that's, I feel like the Jordan Peterson, like 
mental prescription for everything is like, oh, it's so complicated. We can't know truly what's going on. And then they relay their obvious bias by not recognizing the complexity of one side over the other. Yeah. Yeah. It's too complicated. We can't know the truth except when, you know, trans kids feel completely uncomfortable in their own bodies and want to do something about it. Then it's very simple. It's, it's mutilation, you know? I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything one way or the other about that issue, but I'm saying that a lot of these rationalists, like say Sam Harris or, you know, are the most fundamentalist people in the world when it comes to the right topics. And, and Glenn Greenwald has been doing a great job doing media criticism over on Rumble of this whole Israel thing, pointing out that many of the conservatives and pseudo intellectuals who have made their nut on you know, free speech absolutism and criticizing the woke left for their excesses, which is a fair criticism, I think. The left certainly makes it easier, easy for people like Peterson to make them look ridiculous sometimes. But these people are the most woke identitarians when it comes to Israel, and they think that people should be banned for speaking their minds. So back to your actual question. These are all side points, I think, important ones, but side points. This business of is it so complicated? And yeah, the pseudo-enlightened intellectual and spiritual bypass. Well, here's a basic philosophical question. Can we pronounce political, legal, and moral judgment on anything? Is it valid? So is it valid, for instance, to say that the Holocaust was a terrible crime against humanity? Or the Armenian genocide was a terrible crime against humanity? Or the Stalinist purges were huge overreaches and they were criminal or the U S bombing of Vietnam. If we think that's not a legitimate pursuit, well, that's fine. Then just, you know, fuck off out of politics and don't pronounce judgment on anything. Don't tell me that Hamas is the cause of this and that Islamic fundamentalism is at the root of it and that it's wrong and we must wipe it out. Well, you just simplified a very complicated thing. If you think it's so complicated, shut the fuck up. And we should all shut the fuck up because we don't have a right to pronounce everything is too complicated. Even the Holocaust was complicated. A lot of ins and outs. <laughs> As the dude said in the Big Lebowski's, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous. <laughs> You know, so why are any of us pronouncing on it? However, if we think it's legitimate in general, in the abstract, for human beings to have a take on things and to rely on the evidence of their senses, their gut feelings, and cross-referencing it with legalities and moral principles, if we think that that's in the abstract a moral pursuit, well, then it's totally obscurantist and obfuscating and quite frankly, fraudulent to say in this case, it's too complicated. Number one, that's on a principled level. Before we even get into, is it that complicated? You get what I'm saying? So then let's get into, is it that complicated? If we dispense with the idea that it's not enlightened or something to have political views. And I've seen, I have people on Twitter. It's really funny. You know who comes at me the most on Twitter, the most regularly and the most kind of dismissively? It's not Zionists. Zionists keep their distance. It's these non-dualistic people. They're part of some non-dual community that my dad's been affili affiliated with tangentially, not necessarily this group. And they're like, Daniel's being dualistic. You know, like they just, they just object philosophically. You know, <laughs> if we dispense with that horse shit, 
then we're left with what is this situation? And I can't recommend, speaking of Jordan Peterson, by the way, someone for whom I have very little esteem, his daughter, Michaela Peterson, conducted a very, very generous, open-minded, open-eared interview with the eminent Israel-Palestine scholar Norman Finkelstein, who has stuck to his guns and been really heroic in his refusal to abandon his principles and to be unfaithful to the facts. He is very faithful to the facts and to truth, and he's documented these exhaustively, sometimes exhaustingly too. And she had him on on her YouTube channel, and I recommend everyone go look at it. And he laid out, I think, a very concise but very fair history of the conflict. Of course, not complete, but hit all the important points, which is that the Zionist project that led to the creation of the state of Israel, and we have to be careful about our terms because there used to be a thread of Zionism that wasn't colonial or at least wasn't supremacist. It said the Jews should have a homeland and the Holy Land would be a great place for it, but we should do it in a way where coexistence and equality are maintained and it's not a Jewish state and it's not a Jewish army, but it's like a federated or sort of, you know, protect, it's like almost like a protected national park or something like that, you know, like that or an archeological site. This would be a protected cultural space and a refuge, but not, in a, in a colonial, supremacist, chauvinist, dominating kind of way. But the side of Zionism that won was the side that ended up in the creation of a Jewish state. And as Norman lays it out, given the starting demographics of that region, which did include Jews, but in a small minority, 12, 13, 15% max in, in the 1910s, a massive coordinated and enabled by the British immigration campaign of European Jews started flooding that land. And by the time we got to 1948, the only way, actually 1947, because it started before the war, the only way that a Jewish state was going to be established was to ethnically cleanse Palestine of its Palestinian inhabitants and to move them into somewhere else. And they ended up moving to refugee camps and fleeing to other countries and all of that. And there was such an ethnic cleansing campaign. And we don't need to look to Palestinian sources. I'm not quoting Hamas here. I'm quoting Israeli historians like Benny Morris and Ilan Pape and Avi Schleim. Benny Morris himself is a huge Zionist now. But what he says is, yes, the ethnic cleansing happened. Yes, massacres happened. Yes, mass rape happened. Yes, many Israeli towns and kibbutzim and villages are built on the ruins of Palestinian villages. Yes, it was a crime and it was necessary and it was worth it because the Jewish state could not be established otherwise. And that's just the fact. That's just true. You can also go back and look at the statements of Zionist leaders of the time. They knew full well what they were doing, and they believed in the courage of their convictions. And I respect that, actually. If you're going to be a rapacious uh, ethnic cleanser, at least admit it. And everyone from, you know, socialists like David, or, you know, pseudo-socialists like David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, and Zev Jabotinsky, the right-wing revisionist, they expressed it in slightly different ways. Jabotinsky was more public about it. He said that we're a settler colonial project. If you don't like it, fuck off. 
I'm not here to play around. Don't disrespect the Arabs. Don't treat them with such contempt that you don't think they're going to fight back. Of course they are. It's their land. They should, but we're going to fucking kill them because we have to. You know, I kind of respect that candor. And Ben-Gurion said, yeah, the, the, the partition plan that everyone harps on in 47, 48, that the Arabs didn't accept, we're not going to honor it anyway. It's just a temporary tactic on our way to greater Israel. So this is, is actually right out in the open. So in that respect, while the history of the Jews in Europe is complicated, while the mandatory history of Palestine in terms of the Ottoman Empire and then the British Mandate and all of this stuff and the Balfour Declaration and the State Department and all the behind-the-scenes machinations that led to the creation of the State of Israel, yeah, those are complex. And if you want to be fully conversant in the complicated history, do your reading. And it's you know there's a lot to know, a lot of dates, a lot of um, personalities, a lot of quotes, a lot of facts. But if you just want to zoom out and say, what is this conflict? These rationalists like to say it's a battle of civilizations. And this is their version of complicated. That's a bedtime story. That's Lord of the Rings. That's the forces of light versus the forces of darkness, which was the very first words out of Benjamin Netanyahu's mouth on October 7th and 8th. It's a bedtime story for baby brains. And these people want to act like this is their complicated, sophisticated history that everyone's supposed to wrap their heads around, but only they're capable of it, and everyone else should shut up. Well, no, it's actually slightly more complicated than that, but also not complicated. You have a people who felt the need for a homeland, and there was a people living in that would-be homeland already, and they did what they needed to do to either kick them out or absorb them and subjugate them to second-class citizenship. And then 1967, Israel conquered the West Bank and Gaza in the 1967 war. And it doesn't matter who started that war, but it was actually Israel who precipitated it, contrary to Israel's propaganda. They knew full well that the Arabs weren't going to beat them. It was not a scrappy underdog victory at all. The U.S. assessed that as well. You can read Lyndon Johnson's notes about it and all otherwise. And they conquered the West Bank and Gaza, and then they've since occupied it. In the 1970s, they started moving in Jewish settlers into those territories. There's nothing complicated about the legality of that. That's 100% illegal. It's inadmissible, number one, to acquire territory by war. That's the first principle of the Geneva Convention. And it was set up in the aftermath of what? The Second World War. Because Hitler <laughs> conquered territory by war. And we didn't want to see that happen again. So the rules-based international order that American neoconservatives and neoliberals love to crow about starts with it's inadmissible to acquire territory by war. Secondly, it's completely illegal to move a single settler from your civilian population into the occupied lands. Your only obligation is to provide as quickly as possible a transition to independence and self-determination for the occupied people. But Israel, because completely from the very beginning, flouted that. It was actually liberal Israeli governments, not conservative ones in the 1970s, who did more settling, more settlers under the labor government than under the Likudniks. And uh, on and on. And then in 1987 emerged the first intifada, 
20 years into the occupation, the Palestinians finally lifted their heads up and started throwing stones, you know, teenagers, children at, um, you know, at Israeli soldiers resisting, showing the world the conditions they lived under. There's nothing complicated about the conditions they lived under. It's horrible and brutal, terrorizing constantly. There's nothing complicated about the question of whether an occupied people has the right to resist. It's a fundamental principle enshrined in international law. There's nothing complicated about whether an occupier has the right to self-defense against that resistance. It does not. It has no rights. It only has the obligation to end the occupation. There's nothing complicated about the state of Gazans in the last 20 years or the precursor to it, which is that Israel and the U.S. allowed generously and magnanimously an election for the Palestinians in 2005 and the wrong people won. Hamas won. Hillary Clinton herself said we should have rigged the election. And as punishment for exercising their, for doing democracy wrong, incorrectly, the U.S. and Israel fomented a coup in the West Bank, and on Gaza, they imposed a brutal siege and blockade, totally medieval, in which they limited the flow of everything. They withdrew Israeli settlers from Gaza in 2004, 2005, 2006, moved the occupation to the outside of the prison camp, the concentration camp, which is the term used by everyone from an Israeli sociologist, Baruch Kimmerling, to an Israeli general, Giora Island, who was very much in favor of maintaining the concentration camp, although he had a final solution in mind and he's still around advocating it. I know I'm going all over the place, but I'm winding my way towards the present. Um, they imposed a brutal siege and blockade, which has included, among other things, at times, deliberate mathematical calculations of the number of calories necessary to keep Palestinians alive but just above the starvation level putting and they call it putting palestine on a diet putting gaza on a diet that's one of their lovely little israeli euphemisms another mowing euphemism the mowing the lawn exactly you're right on mowing the lawn is the word the nice tidy little phrase for going in every few years using hamas rockets as a pretext and rockets is a generous term they're mostly just fireworks that land totally off course they're not targeted and the iron dome that america provides the missile defense that you know shoots down most of them something like i don't know three to four to ten israeli civilians have been killed in the last 20 years that's obviously an intolerable amount but as retribution and really this is what they want to do anyway to establish their deterrence capacity the arab world's fear of israel israel goes in every few years and bombs the shit out of gaza and massacres hundreds to thousands of people and they name these things, these tough, macho-sounding, biblical, uh, pseudo-biblical names like Operation Cast Lead and Operation Protective Edge and Operation Pillar of Defense. These fascist nomenclatures, you know. So there's nothing complicated about the Palestinians who broke out of the Gaza concentration camp on October 7th, were born in a concentration camp, had no prospects for any future. The world completely abandoned the Palestinians, even when they resist nonviolently, like in 2018, the Great March of Return, they get shot down like dogs by Israeli snipers. And Israelis gather on the hills of Sterot, the town nearby, watch it and cheer. Not all of them, but mainstream secular Israelis. There's nothing complicated about any of that. Now, where do we go from here? 
There's some complications, but it starts with something very simple. Ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, a return of the Palestinian privileges, uh, not privileges, exactly the opposite, prisoners held in Israeli detention without trial, and then an end to the occupation and the siege, and then a diplomatic resolution of the conflict. Thank you. And all that you said, is, I, I love that you essentially pointed out the fact that these fundamentalists like Dear Peter, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, dear, dear Jordan Peterson, um, and and our smooth-brained uh, politicians, they take these simple stances, they take these fundamental perspectives, and, and they perpetrate them throughout their narratives. And, uh, and and of course, that trickles down. That's the trickle down to society, and we all end up with these as two complicated tates to get involved on it. I love how you essentially pointed that out by making it very clear. What is a simple take on this? Like it's it's not complicated X, it's not complicated Y. And I and I am just sitting here like a student with a front row seat at a what actually happened history class. And I'm all too grateful to be absorbing this information as someone who once had that take as well. It's too complicated. I have no idea what's going on over there. It's just always war and violence. I don't get it. And now our listeners are going to get this incredibly comprehensive timeline with footnotes and references and so on and so forth. And I just want to extend a thank you to you for that. You're welcome. And I have to give credit to all the sources that I've learned from and for Norman Finkelstein, especially his distillation of it. But I added some of my own and, you know, my brother's done some great work on this stuff. And, you know, I learned a lot from my dad when I was a, a teenager about this. So, you know, I don't expect anyone to be as conversant in is me, and I'm by no means the most conversant. But the purpose and the function of it's too complicated is to shut you, Amanda, and everyone like you up. Right. Yes, indeed. Because our lives are too busy for us to look into anything perceivably complicated. Right. And this is Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent model to a T. People are too busy to really look. So they, they rely on sources and the media is there to filter information, to bound the terms of debate and everything else that keeps people disempowered and feeling unentitled to having a take on very simple things. And which is why he recommends a course of intellectual self-defense. So I hope I'm giving you some intellectual antioxidants here. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I'll shut up after this. I just want to point out, and that's how we end up with a society dependent on a hierarchy that we hand over our power and our life choices to because we are so busy and we feel it's so complicated that we couldn't we couldn't possibly be the one to understand or make decisions. But these people whose job it is, who hopefully are spending their time on understanding these things and making the best decisions for us, we give that power to them. Yes, we and, do. and that that's how we end up where we're at today talking about these atrocities in Gaza instead of being able to do something about it. Yeah. I don't know if we give it to them or they never give it to us in the first place, but we need to take it back either way. I mean, that's what Rage Against the Machine said in 1992. You got to take the power back, you know, and uh, they at least have have been one band that stood up for Palestine over the years. What's up, Zachary? Sorry, that was was the wrong nomenclature. (laughs) The... uh... The clip that I think about all the time when this it's complicated comes up is this brilliant little clip of Michael Brooks, who was a big inspiration. Oh of mine, God, yeah. Who he he showed me like politics. This politics stuff is not that complicated, and I was like driving through L.A., living in my in the truck that I lived to on my way to my shitty demolition job, listening to him every morning. 
just break it down. Like, it's not that complicated. Like, you could have an opinion on this. You could understand this. And he basically just says, like, it's not complicated. It's a huge power imbalance. It's a nuclear superpower, a bunch of bunch against people with fireworks and rocks. And the, the thing about that that's that really fucks me up about it, and the place that it is complicated, is in the mental justifications and the Very rationalizations yep. that go through people's minds. And I just want to go on a little riff about this word um, like justification. Was this attack justified? People yep. are, are obsessed with this language of is it justified? Is Israel justified? Is Hamas justified? And I just think it's such a language of, of baked in judgment and moral condemnation, not of causation. We're not under, looking to understand the situation and the factors that push human beings to do what they do. The epistemic, the environmental, the social and historical forces that create the conditions that make human behavior inevitable. When you put people in violent prison conditions and shame them and deprive them and en enact all this violence on them, that we have plausible deniability that it's violence because, oh, I didn't shoot a rocket. I might have turned food off like a switch to your whole concentration camp, but that's not violence. I, I gave you that food to begin with, you know? So it's like the whole situation is just so warped and distorted. And it, it's, it's the ways people internalize it and normalize it. And I think this is, this is the big thing. And this is, this is what the book so beautifully elucidates and crystallizes. You, know, you said that was your role in this is to crystallize it, you know, uh, your father yeah, is I mean, my, I think, and you're the crystallizer. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's right. I think my dad's theory or, or approach to it itself is very illuminating. But then in terms of the delivery of that message and the polishing of that message, that was my role. And of course, the book is illuminating everything you just said, in mainly in the field of health and wellness, but you could say the same thing about the field of um, political mental hygiene and emotional hygiene and um, the ways that people justify the unjustifiable to themselves are incredible. And one of the ways is they say, do you justify what Hamas did? And you couldn't have better summed up the theme of the very first Instagram live I did on this topic on October 8th, which might for all I know have been how you heard about me. I did a walk. I just had a sense that I had something to crystallize both for myself and might be helpful for others. I didn't know what I was going to say. And that was the theme, justification versus inevitability. And I tried to explain why what happened was, in a very real sense, inevitable. And to say that it was inevitable means that we could have avoided it. But given that we didn't avoid it, it was inevitable. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And if it was inevitable based on certain conditions, then there's nothing inevitable about the future. Because if we change those conditions, stop imprisoning, immiserating, torturing, brutalizing, humiliating, dehumanizing, dispiriting, dispossessing, devaluing this group of people, and people say, well, what would happen if, it, I don't know what would happen. It may not be sufficient to end the occupation, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary. And this is another huge fallacy people make because it's like what Hillary Clinton says when she was debating Bernie Sanders in 2016. She says, well, would, 
Would breaking up the banks cure racism? Yes. <laughs> Not immediately. It would be a good start, though. It would. Ha- <laughs> it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. But even if it doesn't, that's a false goalpost to put in. Like, just who? Uh, no. In order to have the society in which groups aren't stratified and that could actually rectify the evils of racist oppression, which is part and parcel of economic repression, right? How did racism in America start? The economic and labor exploitation of a whole group of people. Racism itself is a European construction to to justify economic plunder. (laughs) So is it sufficient? No. But you're not really serious about curing racism anyway, Miss Super Predators. You know, you have no interest in that. So shut the fuck up. It's a total red herring. So it's like that. It's like, would it stop Hamas? I don't know if it would, but you would be lancing the boil, disinfecting the wound, and providing even the slimmest chance that we should take, if it's there, that a different future is possible. And the fact is, the Zionist narrative relies on the, the lie, the canard, the slander that Palestinians just want to kill Jews. Palestinians just want to live. And they know it's not Jews. It's the supremacist system they live under. Uh, this is in no way um, comparable when it comes to um, uh, m- the, the micro uh, lens. But, it, but that makes me, uh, that resonates with me as an American who uh, just wants to live day to day, wear clothes, eat food, and not know that I'm oppressing someone every time I do anything in capitalism. Um, but I want to latch on to uh, your mention of conditioning and your mention of there could be a, a better world. We could do better, essentially. Um, in reading chapter four of your wonderful book uh, on epigenetics, um, and I'm, I just have a pseudo knowledge of it. I won't claim to know a whole lot, but being Me neither, on the, by the way, I, I, nothing, none of the scientific medical materials in that book. Am I an expert on that's all him? Well, indeed, uh, your father for sure, but I'm, I'm glad to be in company of someone uh, who is also navigating it still, yeah. but all that to say, I do have a burning question about the fact that where we're at on our timeline now, does to most seem so very defeatist. Like how could we ever get better from here? But if we are indeed an evolutionary species and through epigenetics, we can create genetic predispositions towards um, certain behaviors, then can we not evolve into a a more uh, benevolent and rational species? And if so, uh, and and this may be completely off in left field and not worth exploring right now, but because of the level of um, inhumanity that we have reached, I just wonder how many decades or how many centuries could it take, if we have that much time on this planet, to deprogram us, to untraumatize us, hmm. you know, uh, and hopefully reach that that place in existence for humanity and all life on earth where we're not bombing the crap out of everybody. We're actually living in what crunchy people would say harmony, but no, just in a sense of equality and, and with a real quality of life. Well, great. I mean, look, so, such a great question. Um, a very grand question. 
As far as living in harmony, yeah, I'm not particularly crunchy. I'm a jazz fan. So my favorite Joni Mitchell is not when she was a sweet folky, but when she got into jazz and fair, you know, it's all good. And, and, and in jazz, the harmonies are dissonant. They're crunchy, not, not crunchy in the hippie sense. They're crunchy in the, in the, you know, notes kind of crunched together and in between spaces. And so I think even right. that kind of harmony would be great, you know, or right on. counterpoint. I, I think the premise of your question is a little off, or at least it's. We can separate a few things out. Uh, I don't think we have to wait for our genetics to to catch up with our ideals. I think we can actually transform our points of view now. We don't have to. Right on. We don't have to de-traumatize ourselves. We can't change the past. Healing is not about changing the past. It's about recasting what it means. And the more we can do that, the less we'll, trauma will pass on. And it's a filtering system. It's a bit, bit by bit, we'll, we'll bleach it out of our system and we'll never entirely. And that's not the litmus test. We don't have to. The question is, can, be, can we be responsible now? Because epi, even epigenetics don't doom us to anything. There's never mind human evolution, which is a long-term, I mean, much long-term than even 10 generations or a thousand years, right? You know, actual evolution is like massive, even though epigenetic changes can happen more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can just transform our mindset. Yeah, the paradigm definitely needs to change. It's like the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken. Before we reach that point I'm talking about, our, our paradigm obviously has to change, but our collective is so inundated with trauma at this point, we come back to the question, where do we start from well, yeah. and where do we go? So we start by dealing with the past as it was. If you look in part five of our book, you know, basically about the dynamics of healing, what healing requires from us, the number one thing is getting that whatever went wrong, nothing can fully estrange us and alienate us from our true essence as individuals, as families, you know, that, that, that potential is always there. And the thing that separates us, you know, and this comes back to the very definition of trauma, you know, trauma is a gloomy subject, but actually our rendering of trauma, which is a more and more mainstream one, actually, is that trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. And given neuroplasticity within a single lifetime, not just over the course of eons, what the past means to you is transformable. And that's intimately related to the topic we started with. Because what is Zionism? Zionism is founded on a particular interpretation of Jewish history. And ultimately, I believe... It's one that rejects much of Jewish history. You know, I did a debate last week that I've only just recovered from. It was a very intense, long, two-and-a-half-hour discussion with a current Mm -hmm. active-duty IDF reserve soldier. And he was stationed on an Israeli base in the south of Israel, very close to Gaza. And for all I know, he had just come back from a flight operation or from a sniper post, and he was just heading out. And this guy is a skilled propagandist and he's got a very sort of uh, nice sounding spin on the Zionist story, which is that all Jews are brothers and sisters and the Palestinians are our cousins, which is very nice. In which case, as your brother, I have to stop you from killing our cousins, I think. But anyway, uh, and that we, you know, we were scattered to the winds and that we are reclaiming our historic role in the world. And that in fact, we are decolonizing Israel. 
we're decolonizing Palestine by forming Israel. That's his, that's his flex. That, that, that is that funny. We, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it raises some questions such as why has, why do all indigenous peoples in the world look at the situation and recognize themselves in the group that you're fucking bombing and not in you, you know, you're the one with the high tech Western technology and the, 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 the big, you know, cosmopolitan Western, you know, capital Tel Aviv and all of that kind of stuff. But that's his story. The early Zionists had a story that was quite frankly, anti-Semitic. There's a great clip of Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro on Katie Halper's, uh, podcast. And I'll get back to her in a second because it relates to what you said about Michael Brooks. Zach, Katie's a friend of mine. She co-hosts Useful Idiots with my brother, Aaron. And Yaakov Shapiro, this rabbi, reads quotes from Zionist leaders like Jabotinsky and others calling the Jewish people an ugly people. And if I was a Gentile, I would hate the Jews too. They're talking about in the European context. They're explaining why the Jews have been kicked around and abused and rejected for so long, because we're basically hook-nosed schnorers, we're nebishes, we're all of the stereotypes, we're, you know, nerds, basically. It's basically a bully being like, nerd, like he used to be. A, I, I was like this. I was a nerd in grade seven. I got to I got to eighth grade, and I became sort of the, the bully, not physically, but I ganged up to, you know, be kind of a minister of propaganda against weaker students and make fun of them. I, I did some horrible things. I wrote some horrible pamphlets actually making fun of like a couple of guys in a very homophobic way. And they weren't, and they weren't, they weren't gay as far as I know, but, but I, it was like, if you can't beat them, join them. And Zionism is the ultimate. If you can't beat them, join them. We want to get into the domination game. We want to get into the racism game. We want to be on top. They accept the framework of the oppressors and say, well, let's just let's just occupy the opposite side of the table there. So there's a lot of self-rejection in it. And that's the Zionist story. I have a different story. I have a different interpretation of Jewish history. I have a different interpretation of what the Spanish Inquisition and the Holocaust mean. The fact that my great-grandparents died at Auschwitz. The fact that my dad almost died of dysentery in the Budapest ghetto and had to be given to a Gentile woman on the street and didn't see his mother for three and a half weeks. I have a different version of that. And it's the same events, but two people can look at the same events and come up with different conclusions. The Zionist version, I believe, is a refusal to face the grief and the heartbreak and all of the things that need to be faced if we're going to face just the unvarnished truth of the past. My version is, I think, embracing the pain and saying, who are we really? And what do we need, certainly, but also what's re- what, ne- what is needed from us? And um, so healing on the individual or the collective level is reframing the story. What happened, happened. I was abused. I was abducted. I was raped. I was the child of divorce. None of these things, except maybe abused uh, in a light sort of way, apply to me. I'm not speaking about myself. I'm speaking about, you know, I was mistreated. I wasn't seen and heard. That's a fact of history. I'm a piece of shit or I have to dominate the world like Donald Trump concluded about his abusive childhood. These are interpretations, and it's the interpretations that stay with us and live as trauma in our minds and bodies. So healing is possible. And just to come back to Michael Brooks for a second, what a mensch that guy was, and what a terrible, 
terrible loss when we lost him in the summer of uh, 2020, you know, just a shock. I met him not, what was it? I forget how long before that it was. Yeah, it was only eight months before he died. I hung out with him backstage at a Harvard event. I was there with my friend Katie Helper um, and Cornell West was there and a bunch of wonderful people. Dream blunt rotation. What's that? (laughs) It's a dream blunt rotation right there. Dream blunt rotation. Ultimate posse cut, you know? (laughs) You know? Cornell would definitely be the inspected deck, the leadoff verse, you know? And, um, but uh, it was a Harvard students for Bernie rally. And uh, I just got to hang out with Michael Brooks and just let, listen to him cook, you know, for a good 45 minutes and, and just what a, just a marvelous human being he was and what a, what a resource and boy, oh boy, could we use him right now? Hey friends. We'll return to the main conversation in just a moment. But we're taking this quick break to ask, do you want to do something about all the issues we talk about here on our show? Do you want to learn more, get involved, and help us help others break out of the cycle? Step one is to join the growing community of rebels and kind hearts sharing their knowledge and passion. Follow Moneyless Society on our social media pages and spread the message to people who need it. When you're ready, you can get involved by reaching out and becoming a Moneyless Society volunteer. We need every skill imaginable, large or small, if we're going to resist the powers destroying our planet. And even if you don't have time to volunteer, you can help us build the dream with donations of any size. We create all of this community and content because it is our passion, but we need resources to get it done. Monthly Patreon donors receive cool perks like early access to future episodes, and visitors to our website, moneylesssociety.com, can buy Moso shirts and other merchandise that help spread awareness. We're glad you're here, and we hope that you'll keep learning and growing with us. The goal may seem far away, but we can get there together. I just want to just uh, take a little take a little breath and appreciate um, the profound truth in all of this, and the the tragedy, and the, the the sweetness, and the beauty, and the lesson that like. Can you imagine if what we were going through right now, like we weren't traumatized and we were just like this all the time? Like it's a gift in a way that we are going through this because we can learn from it. Thank God. Of course we can learn from it. We can grow. We can be better because all this trauma that we've been through is cyclical. It is an infectious disease as you know, James Gilligan talks about violence as an infectious disease. And it has spread from person to person, from nation to nation for such a long time, there's this, I think about this quote from uh, William Faulkner's uh, Nobel Prize speech. He said, our tragedy today is a general and universal physical fear so long sustained by now we can even bear it. And so it's like we've become normalized into all of this. We've, we've microdosed pain in so many small ways and so many big ways that it's like we are, n- we are numb to that pain for the rest of our existence. And it, that's the cruel irony of trauma is that it becomes this almost magnetic force that seeks to regurgitate itself that, and I think this is really like the, the cycle of all human history that has led to these forces of colonialism and imperialism and capitalism today. And this this is like the, if I had one question to ask your old man, this would be to talk about this, you know, this cycle of trauma. Well, he ain't here, but let me say this. 
what's crazy about what you just said, first of all, it's entirely true. But at the heart of it, at the root of it, is a benevolent impulse. I have a friend, a trauma therapist, uh, sorry, a somatic therapist named uh, Luis Mojica, uh, who has interviewed me in he, holistic life navigation is his his sort of brand. That's what he calls it on Instagram. And um, he talks about how trauma is a gift, really. It's an attempt. And we talk about this in the book. It's an attempt to ensure that the intolerable from the past never recurs. It's trying to keep us safe. So if you look at the Zionist narrative... It's geared around never again for us. <laughs> we will never allow that to happen again. And it's understandable, but it locks you into a constrained view of reality that, that in the end guarantees that it'll happen again because stories like that always seek evidence for themselves to reinforce themselves and anything that happens, it'll... It'll ignore the counter evidence and it'll always seek to confirm its own bias. That's how ideology works, you know? So that's part of the mechanism by which it gets normalized. In fact, it gets valorized that this is the right way to look at it. And it persists in this impossible delusion that someday if we keep doing the very things we're doing that have rendered us so unsafe, we will be safe which always you know, leads me to a question I ask my clients all the time, how's that going for you? <laughs> well, we're getting there. We're almost there. We just have to wipe out Hamas. Well, it used to be we have to wipe out the PLO, so let's create and fund Hamas. <laughs> That's what Israel did in the 80s because they didn't want a negotiating partner that was moderate and reasonable and considering supporting a two-state solution. They wanted I'm glad crazy- you brought that up. Yeah. Go for it. We did it. We just did a, a separate podcast with a good friend of our show, um, Iranian activist. And uh, the premise of the show is kind of a clickbait thing, but it was like, was October 7th an inside job? And it was ultimately like, no, it's not a conspiracy, but this was created by Israel. This whole situation was created and profited on by Israel. Yeah. And they've, as you said, created this self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. that they are seeking with, I really wonder like how much self-awareness is there and how much just blind, like calcified, like, you know, encased in amber, like just mechanical yeah. repetition of trauma is going on here because it, it's just like, it, it's like we're watching the horror movie and we're like, don't go in there. Don't go in there. You know, it, it's a tragedy. It's tragic watching a people that have something so horrible was done to them that it is like the paragon of genocides to immediately go right into or be thrust into by the British, by the Americans, by these forces that wanted to use them, that wanted to get them out of their countries. You know, th this, this whole horrible situation is just like this garden bed, this where things rank and gross have grown out of this Absolutely. trauma, this unaddressed wound. All things vile and nasty as the Monty Python song goes. Um, well, yeah, I mean, what you said certainly applies to the Israeli people who swallow this stuff and tolerate it and have normalized it. It's a little more insidious with the Israeli leaders. I think they are deeply cynical, and I think behind closed doors, they know that what they're doing is just maintaining power for power's sake. They're so corrupted 
they've gone so far over to the dark side that they're capable of extreme mendacity in public. And this is true, I think, probably of you know people like Lindsey Graham in the states and even Adam Schiff on the Dem- doesn't matter Democratic Republican these warmongers when it comes to Ukraine and Russia I don't think they actually believe the content of their rhetoric they believe that it's worth saying they believe that it's the way to mobilize people but that's because they have contempt for people if they were honest they would say we want hegemony Russia poses a threat to that if they were the Democrats they say we screwed Bernie Sanders in 2016, but we don't want to admit that. And we, we, we put forward the least popular candidate in history, Hillary Clinton, and that's why we lost. But instead of that, we're going to blame Russia. You know, And then they come to just internalize that, as do media figures. And now anything we do, anything we support is justified and so on and so forth. And the cycle continues. So, yeah, I think probably at the top, there's a lot of cynicism. I'm with you about, I can never go to the full conspiracy thing. Like I start to feel like people start to sound, yeah, I just don't, as as Noam Chomsky said, these things are out in the open. The actual way power works is there or in declassified documents. Maybe we'll find out that the US planned 9-11 and let it happen. Maybe we'll find that the Israelis, you know, Certainly, we're finding out that Israel knew more than they suggested, but they had other priorities. They took their settle, they took their soldiers out of the south, sent them to the West Bank to support psychotic settler terrorists around that time. Uh, they ignored warnings, and and that's a function of something. But I, it doesn't require a full blown, oh my god, for the rest of the two and a half hour Oliver Stone movie, we're going to uncover the pieces, and there's going to be a whistleblower, and we're going to, you know. I'm not saying Oliver Stone is a kook. I'm just saying, I guess the JFK conspiracy theory makes actually a lot of sense to me. But a lot of other conspiracy theories, I just think they're kind of putting a hat on a hat and they're not necessary. But we'll find out what we find out. And certainly Max Blumenthal, my brother's uh, colleague at the Gray Zone, has been doing very interesting reporting. I don't know if it's conclusive, but it's reporting that questions and problematizes, to use a fancy word, the official narrative about October 7th and shows that at the very least, never mind who planned it, who did the killing is a mixed bag. And certainly which of the Israeli claims about the depravity and horrors of, of what Hamas did is also in dispute. And I think it's, that's just, that's sufficient until we know more. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I've dug a lot into this and, and I'm not a conspiracy uh, tinfoil hat wearer, uh, more like more more into cowboy hats than tinfoil hats. But um, <laughs> I think the the overarching thing is that like there's no conspiracy required, and it's like with COVID or with 9/11, with any any of these things, it's like would it make a fucking difference if it was a conspiracy? Because the right. system responded in the exact same way as if they would immediate capture, profiteering, and milking it for everything that it is to use it as a justification to, for instance, reach for the billions of dollars of liquid natural gas underneath Gaza. But I, sure, I, that's, I digress. Yeah. That's plausible to me, or in the case of 9-11, to enact the Patriot Act, to clamp down on civil liberties, to clamp down on dissent, and to go ahead and do what they wanted to do anyway, which is to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. Israel has been, Israel loves a pretext to go in and, and, and go ham on, on, on Palestine. You know, they, 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 they take any opportunity they can get 
and they're never not ready for a full-scale assault. And this was a gift, which is why I think some people say you know, who support Palestine really fault Hamas for giving them such a pretext. And that gets into a, a more complicated question of is armed resistance justified? Can we really condemn a slave revolt or a prison break, even if we lament the consequences? Yeah, Amanda. Thank you. Well, this is going to take it in a, a little bit of a different direction. Um, and as we're coming up on the hour, that's why I want to go ahead and get it in, because I'm not sure what your time restraints are today. Um, and what I'm essentially going to do is make a couple of statements and ask you to boil them down and clarify them into a prescription of sorts for our listeners. Great. And it might be a tall ask, because what I'm asking for is a 60-second walk for our listeners who are grappling with the things that are going on in the world, not just in Gaza, but all the inundating, uh, crushing weight of the traumas that we're experiencing in our day-to-day -day lives and also as a collective. First of all, I'm going to assert that uh, inwardly directed empathy is an antidote to most things, or at least a good starting point. And I'm going to revisit the fact that I advocate for letting yourself fall apart when you feel like you need to. And, and I know that that may be coming from uh, a point of naivety and maybe even a privileged point place because uh, obviously what keeps us from doing that is our our fear our subconscious knowing that we're going to have to face things we don't want to but fall apart if you get a chance if you have to pull over on the side of the highway if you have to mute your mic in your cubicle if you get the urge do it but having said all of that because let me tell you you've got you're going to have to fall apart and break before you can mend but um Having said all of that, through the lens of empathy, whether it's inward or outwardly directed, and, uh, and knowing that we're going to have to break before we can mend, um, if you were to take our listeners on a walk with those things, how would you boil it down and clarify it into a prescription, if that would be part of your prescription? Yeah, I don't necessarily give prescriptions. Um, or advice. Except in the sense of like homework after the fact, once we achieve the intention of the walk, whether that's clarity, suppleness, flexibility, space, the ability to process grief, all of those things. Right. Then I say, well, here's some practices you can do to kind of reinforce that nascent capacity that you've just touched into. It's really right. about recovering the parts of us that go missing in action when we're stuck. Then we, we touch into it by the end of the walk, and now they have a taste bud for it. And then you want to develop your palate for it and get get start having that be more normal. So, by the way, it doesn't have to be 60 seconds. I can go you know, 20, 30 more minutes if we want to. Well, yes, if I may interject really quickly, and I forgot my, my driving point was actually how to help our listeners – unnormalize these narratives yep. and unnormalize this level of violence that's causing the trauma. Like how can we do that actively in our day-to-day -day lives while ourselves are trying to heal from trauma through the lenses of empathy and whatnot? Yeah. Well, would you mind if I read you a paragraph from right near the end of our book? In fact, do either of you have the book in front of you, The Myth of Normal? I don't have it in front of me. I do have the PDF, which I'm still um, enjoying, though it is taking me down rabbit holes that are both triggering and enlightening. And let me tell you, it's a trip. It's a journey, but I'm, I'm liking it and I'm appreciating it. This is from page 497. And it's one of the final paragraphs. And um, I have it on good authority that I wrote it. <laughs> it all starts with waking up. Waking up to what is real and authentic in and around us and what isn't. Waking up to who we are and who we're not. Waking up to what our bodies are expressing and what our minds are suppressing. 
waking up to our wounds and our gifts, waking up to what we have believed and what we actually value, waking up to what we will no longer tolerate and what we can now accept. I'll say that again, waking up to what we will no longer tolerate and what we can now accept. And I'll speak about acceptance versus tolerate tolerance in a second or toleration. Waking up to the myths that bind us and the interconnections that define us. Waking up to the past as it has been, the present as it is, and the future as it may yet be. Waking up most especially to the gap between what our essence calls for and what normal has demanded of us. Hard hitting. I think that's it in a in a nutshell. Um, awareness, discernment, the willingness to feel whatever comes along with that. You know, I consider grief the great conveyor belt that takes us from the land of make believe, the land called should have been or shouldn't have been, to the land of what is, which is the only place we can find a portal to what's possible. So. Whatever it takes to wake up, which necessarily involves disillusionment, as my dad likes to say, would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? As Axel Rose says, I've worked too hard for my illusions just to throw them all away. And that's our (laughs) default setting, you know, but also there's a word that sounds a lot like disillusion and it's dissolution for things to dissolve. We have to let things dissolve. I don't consider myself a problem solver. I consider myself a problem dissolver. Things like our illusions. Our illusions, our futile attempts to change the past or even overcome the past. Mm. You want to see someone overcoming the past? Look at Bidbi Netanyahu. That's not healing the past. That's trying to conquer the past. And in so doing, what you resist persists. You're dragging your past into your future and dooming your present to misery and squalor. and or Not squalor, but, but degradation and horror. And if you're in power, you have the ability to offload that onto other people that you then have to dehumanize, which creates more of the same. So awakeness is what we can all take responsibility for. We can't change what happened in the past. We can be responsible for the past that we are consequences of, if that makes sense. Response able, another one of these spiritual wordplay cliches, but I happen to like that one response ability which only comes from saying my past is my past and i'm responsible for what i make it mean Mm. as opposed to the reactivity of constant inundation of explosions and fear-mongering and the very intentional profit-oriented engagement-driven ad sucking sort of uh you know, craziness of social media. Uh, I was just thinking, right. I was well, writing a little bit. You want to hear a great anagram for the word uh, reactivity? You know what word has exactly the same letters or reactive and creative? Sorry, I just gave it away. Creative. <laughs> just move the C yeah. from creative uh, to between the A and the T and you get reactive. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just thinking like uh, sketching out a little idea of like the, the idea of a conspiracy that like, personality disorder or a trauma or, you know, a psychosis is like a conspiracy that your amygdala, your like more primitive mind is whispering into the ear of the rational mind. And it like mm. filters all the things that could go wrong, all the things that could happen. And as, as again, as a defense mechanism for having your trust broken earlier in life, it, it, it's like making you on high alert all the time. And so 
like what could happen becomes what is happening. And so, you know, mm. to the Zionist perspective that like they want to wipe us out, that you posted a meme today that was just like so obviously a projection, a monstrous projection that you have to wonder like, are these, is this their self-awareness here? Is there some gruesome irony in this? Yes. Every accusation, yes. every accusation Israel makes everyone and I didn't know this until this conflict. I didn't know it so clearly. I didn't see it. I hadn't woken up to it completely. That's the incredible thing. I thought I was pretty woke in the original sense of the word woke, not not virtue signaling or having the right opinions about everything or having, you know, being a perfect ally or getting a merit badge, but being awake. Stay woke, brother. Stay woke, sister. It's another one of these fantastic African-American innovations in political and cultural consciousness that we've totally stolen and despoiled and degraded and diluted and bleached of all of its nutrients. <laughs> uh, you know, stay woke. Uh, I've woken up in a lot of ways. Every single accusation that the Zionists make, that the Israeli Jewish supremacists make, is a confession. They want to wipe us out? Who wants to wipe who out? Who has succeeded partially in wiping who out? You know, they teach their children to hate. Who teaches their children to hate? Have you seen the video of those Israeli children singing that song that was written for them called the Friendship Song 2023 about how we're going to annihilate everyone in Gaza? It's we, it's we Are the World meets Tomorrow Belongs to Me from, from uh, the musical Cabaret, which is a Nazi, you know, religious, racist, supremacist uh, song. Um, uh, what else? They, they, they rape, you know, they're sexual deviants. Who's sexual deviants? Whose prison system is filled with Palestinians, Palestinian boys, 70, 70% of whom experience some kind of sexual assault or harassment while they're in jail. It's just, it just goes on and on and on. They're anti-Semites. Who are anti-Semites? I've already touched on the anti-Semitic uh, genetic signature, the sort of tumor of anti-Semitism inside of the Zionist. Yeah, also, that Arabs are Semites, you know. So it's like the people. Yeah, who that, yeah, yeah, sure. That people, people are always up in my DMs, being like, "Can you say that?" Yeah, that's true. But to me, that's just. I mean, sorry, Arabs. We won the, the tug of war over that word. No one, everyone <laughs> understands it to mean us. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just true. So I, I like, it's true. It's a good, but I don't know how much of an own that is. I, I want to um, sort of switch gears here because this is, um, it's been a great conversation and a really important one. And I felt like we did have a responsibility to weigh in to the sort of um, the transcendent capacity of this issue. And I think we picked a perfect person and have, had a great conversation, but this is a show about systemic change. It is a show about, as you said, Amanda, you're like, I don't want to come in from left field. It's like, we are left field. We are ripping up the baseball field, the left field and like turning it into a permaculture farm. So I want to read something here. It's a little, it's a like paragraph long, but it says, this was a response to the person that initiated our interaction The we won't name, but you know, the person that was forming the intellectual pseudo intellectual apologetics of saying this is too complicated, but he posted like a response that was like, he was kind of learning and growing to it. And if he ever watches this, good for you. I'm glad you're learning and growing, keep going. But it was like a visionary <laughs> solution that, that did not include like a recognition of the fundamental fallacies at work here. So I'm going to read this. It's a little long, but um, it's good. So go for it. Um, 
The problem here is that nobody has a, quote, right to a racist ethnostate. And the Zionists took the land they are illegally occupying for people who live there. In many cases, for nine generations, while the European Jews that settled, many of them had no tangible ties to that land within hundreds of years or more, perhaps even ever. It is a vastly different claim to say that Jewish people deserve a place to live, and still another to say that a militarized nation state, a concept that did not exist whatsoever in the times the Zionists are claiming they lived in occupied Jerusalem, the state itself is the problem. As a project of capitalist expansion, control of territory, and monopoly on violence for elite expansionist empire, resource extraction, and a protection racket for capital interests. The visionary solution is the dissolution, is that word, of the very concept of a centrally controlled, inherently ecocidal entity called a state utilizing clandestine Republican governance, borders, armies, prisons, and police to protect its interests. The visionary solution is equal access, needs-based utilization of land that is commonly held with resources that are of the people and controlled by the people, not the state, not the market, either of these things, but the people themselves. Bioregional governance with direct democratic control by the peoples who live there with representation for the other life that lives there. And an end to the Zionist ideology and indeed to the identification of nations, of lines on the map, of ancient religious ties to land that paradoxically destroys the... the the earth itself that's supposed to be holy in the name of war and capital accumulation. If that land is sacred, then the ecocidal construction of cities and suburbs that devastates that land and human lives for the false god of money to turn it into a big fucking water park and weapons testing facility for the military industrial complex, that is no solution at all. The visionary solution is going beyond states, competition over artificially scarce resources, monoculture, war economies, and unequal access to the needs of life. It is deeply ironic to me that Israel declares its right to exist while denying food is a human right. They're one of two countries in the, on the planet Earth that does not that voted against the UN resolution to make food a human right. So, so all people have a right to live on this earth. And so long as money is the prerequisite for living, none of us is truly has rights. So long as money is power and that money is backed by military might and constant expansion and ecocide, all visions of the future are shrouded in the smog of a dead world. Beautifully, beautifully said, beautifully thought, beautifully written. I have nothing to add. It's true. May it be so. Well, so that's the, yeah, that's the kind of uh, final leg of the journey here, I think. And, and that's because as this is a program and uh, a movement about solutions, about creative solutions, about taking the reactivity and deconstructing and reconstructing it into creative solutions. And so that's, that's our bread and butter. That's what we really like to envision is like, what does a society that works look like if we recognize that our existing systems create the disorder and dysfunction that is so reified in all of our behaviors that it's normalized? What would it look like to create an entirely new society? And I'm not asking you point blank on this show, you know, imagine a, a new society entirely. But I'm sure as somebody who's studied this conflict for a long time, that there, there was maybe one sunlit afternoon where you drifted off and imagined, you know, a... a a, a, an answer to this problem where these peoples could live in peace or how this world could be operated differently, how we could actually harmonize, you know, to some sheet music that's planned, that's intentional, or it's, you know, a yeah. jazz thing where we, you know, roll with the punches yeah. and miss the notes. Well, there's certainly going to have to be some, there's certainly going to have to be some improvisation, you know, and uh, that's what I love about Cornell West. He's always bringing in the, the jazz thing and his conversation with my dad last week was spectacular. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not a solutions guy, but let me read you some more from our book and hopefully this will 
relate to what you said. I think it does. Um, this is the beginning of chapter 33, the final chapter called Unmaking a Myth, Visioning a Saner Society. Oh, beautiful. What will it take to unmake the myth of normal? How can we possibly hope to disassociate? I think I wrote this part too. Uh, this is some good shit. Uh, how can we possibly hope to disassemble <laughs> such a vast agglomeration of culturally manufactured misperceptions, prejudices, blind spots, and health-killing fictions, especially when they serve the interests of a world order intent on its own continuance, even unto self-destruction? Unto. I think I learned that word from Metallica. They love to use that in their lyrics. Um, you'll suffer unto me. Uh, sorry. Um <laughs> The truth is, I don't know. In some ways, I'm more comfortable describing the problem than charting charting a course out of it. I have my own convictions and hunches, especially about the obstacles to a better world, but that doesn't equal a detailed blueprint for something new. Even to the extent that I have strong beliefs about how things ought to look, it seems less than fitting to use the final chapter of this book on trauma and healing to get on a soapbox. And yet, as we bring this inquiry to its conclusion, I do feel a responsibility to offer some sort of alternative vision to the toxic culture I've been depicting. What I can say with confidence is that for our society to right itself and chart a course toward maximum health, certain conditions will have to be met. And it will take some key changes or shifts to create those conditions. They all derive from the core principles of this book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, none of these shifts is sufficient in itself, but as far as I can tell, they are necessary. They are all necessary. They may not fully come to pass without significant social political transformation, but they are easy to grasp and it is well within our power to work towards them. And then there's a little snippet from my dad's interview with Noam Chomsky and so on and so forth. So, you know, there are certain conditions required. Now, in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, yeah, when I drift on, on a when I drift off on a sun-dappled afternoon with my feet in the river yeah. and look at the trees and talk to the birds and say, what's possible? Uh, yeah, I imagine a binational state, a federated maybe a, a country with two flags or a, a flag that's somehow a synthesis of the two, two languages, two national anthems, equal rights for all from the river to the sea. I no longer believe in a two-state solution, both on the justice merits of it, but also just pragmatically. It would have been an imperfect solution, but it would have been the legal one, and it would have been better than what we have. But a one-state solution at this point is the only way out of a a condition where, you know, as all the human rights groups, including the Israeli human rights group, B'Tselem, put it, Israel is an apartheid state, a Jewish supremacist state from the river to the sea already. So functionally, it's a, it's a state with some annexed territory where people don't have rights. The antidote to that is to give them rights and to give up the fiction that Jewish supremacy equals Jewish safety. And that'll require, that's a big lift. That's a big ask for Israelis to give that one up because they have been trained from birth, from the womb, to believe it. And it's very impervious to evidence or to reason. But, you know, the scary thing for me, and Norman Finkelstein said this a long time ago, that Israel is now a lunatic state. And when it comes to lunatic states, it usually takes a massive, catastrophic defeat to wake them up. And I don't want to see that happen. But at the same time, I don't want to see the status quo perpetuate. So... 
I don't know what it'll take. That's my vision. The thing is, when the present is so urgent, the long-term future can wait, even if we, if, even if it animates us. I don't like to get into too much depth about what it would look like or how we would get there because there are things that need to happen now. But yeah, we should be animated by a vision of equality and freedom and justice for everyone in that land, which does not include kicking all the Jews out. That's never going to happen, never could happen. It wouldn't be right even if it happened. There might be some kind of historical, you know, uh, abstract justice to it, but it's it's rife with all kinds of other injustices and um, it would never work anyway and I wouldn't support it. It's about both peoples living in that land equally and it would require a truth and reconciliation period <laughs> at least as long as what happened in South Africa, probably longer. Um, and yeah, that's that's my hazy vision of what's possible. But in the meantime, there's many things that have to happen no matter what your vision is of the future. We can't use the haziness or the non-consensus on what future should happen as a pretext to postpone the non-negotiable. Well, you don't get much more inspiring than that. I mean, honestly, I, I had a few thoughts and some questions throughout your response. And um, and as each one popped up, your next sentence satisfied it. So, But I, do, I am curious, um, on the front of imagining what the world could be, are you familiar with Jacques Fresco and the Venus Project? I'm not. Okay. So Jacques Fresco is a visionary and um, picked up the work of Buckminster Fuller, who also is a visionary, a futurist of what the world could be. And a lot of people have watered down their vision to being no more than a utopia. Uh, when you describe what you envision uh, the world could be like, it reminds me of one of Jacques Fresco's most well-known um, references to how the human brain works. And that's essentially our environment dictates our behavior and our thought patterns and what we understand about the world. So in your vision, you see, you said some kind of federated thing, you know, yada, yada, whatever. And that's because that is within the limits of what you have experienced and learned about the world. But it also also shows the fact that you are moving in the direction of improvement, you could move farther outside of the box of what you know and understand. And that's what all of us are charged with doing is trying to see outside of that proverbial box and understand what else is possible. And, and so to that end, I just want to point out to our listeners, we have shown such a propensity over the centuries to normalize dystopia to be so comfortable with it to the fact to the point that we just have like this 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 uh this dark humor that we cope with from day to day and now that's been mutated by social media that's another that's another point and another problem but we we've have we have such a propensity to normalize dystopia why do we ridicule utopia if we can have dystopia and we can support it so vehemently why can't we do that with utopia why can't we push ourselves outside of that box and start exploring what could happen if we wanted to normalize utopia as our future destination. And that's, again, one of those left-field things, kind of grandiose, 
doesn't exactly fit into the narrative here, but in talking about the other extreme where we're at right now on this plane of human existence where everything is just so incredibly dark and, uh, and hurtful, I just keep looking toward that light of what I, I, people would call utopia. Yeah, I totally hear you. And that's totally valid. If that animates you and your activism or your way of living, do it. You know, I think it's a different domain than what do we do now? I think it's just a different. Right. And it's also one that kind of by its nature, you're never going to get everyone on board with the same utopian vision. And right. in fact, there's a lot of mischief historically that happens when utopian um, visions succeed because they come up against the parts of the world that are not going to bend to that vision. And in a way, there is a comfort, self-soothing aspect to utopianism if it's misused. That's analogous to what Zachary said about conspiracy theories. You know, it's like a single unifying uh, field theory of what should be and what could be. And it gives us a sense of comfort and, you know, and then we don't need to deal with the messy, complicated aspects of the present, nor the fact that everyone sees the world a different way. However, a utopian vision, I would just call that a vision of possibility. You know, rather right. than, I mean, I grew up, my Zionist summer camp I went to was utopian in a sense because we were kibbutz oriented. We, we would, we had a group of, we had work groups. The first thing in the morning, we would do work groups. I used to get up before everyone else and go down to the kit, the dining hall and help prepare breakfast and then help, uh, not help prepare it, but help serve breakfast, you know? Uh, and we, and there were kids who dealt with the garbage and the toilets and the laundry. It was really a wonderful way to go to summer camp. And it was completely separate. We got to experience it like a different planet than the capitalist urban um, environment that we lived in the rest of the year. And that was modeled on our vision of what kibbutz should be. Now, kibbutz never quite sustained that, even if it ever had it, because it was never fully egalitarian. It was mainly for Jews. But that was really good training for me. But I was a kid. And so if we're able, I think, to hold our utopianism lightly, just like if we can hold our skepticism and our atheism or whatever, or our religion lightly, then we have space to let it animate us without letting it box us in. That would be my only caveat. In other words, be sure that it doesn't in turn limit us, which is the opposite of what we want to do. And I just want to clarify really quickly before we go on to uh, Marlo here. Um, that's the beautiful thing about moneyless society's um, projected course so far is because we're looking at this uh, transition and this uh, possible future through the lens of systemic awareness, we understand that it can't be uh, unambiguous. It can't be an absolutist take. It has to involve so many different moving parts and everyone, essentially. And like you said, that's where we run into barriers. Uh, but neither here nor there, I do love that you pointed out that we can't just look so far ahead that we miss what's right in front of us and don't deal with it because we can't get there if we don't deal with what's right here in front of us right now. And so that's another component of Moneyless Society right now is doing boots on the ground work. While I wish so much that I could take my group of volunteers and go over to Palestine 
sign and stop everything, what we are doing here in our local uh, region and our immediate mile is one of our past um, past guests so wonderfully put it um, is just feed people and empower them to take agency over their own lives and understand that they have these choices. But that is a discussion for another time. No, I just got a, I got three things. I'm going to try to hit them quickly because I know we're running up on time. One, you asked, why don't people uh, dream big, basically? And I think it's the same reason that people don't question I- identification and ideology. It's because they're identified with it. Uh, yes. A lot of these these people, these Zionists, are not questioning what Israel's doing because Israel has successfully equated uh, criticism of Israel or criticism of Zionism with criticism of Jews. And they've identified with that. So it's like for, for there's a second layer of that. For people to criticize that system is, is to criticize them. And so I think for people to actually step out of their reactive identification with this horror trauma world <laughs> that's all so normalized, most people don't even see that it's an option, that we could live other ways. It's that to think about that other world, that our be- the, the beautiful world our hearts know is possible, is to deconstruct our very identity. Because we are this world. We are products of our environment and so on. Um, third point can is, respond, is basically- Can I respond to that very quickly? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Because I don't want to lose it. That's why you're what's here. <laughs> what's interesting about that is if you look at our book, The Myth of Normal, there's a number of stories of people who spontaneously had remissions from what was supposed to be absolutely terminal cancer or ALS or other conditions or who healed it against all medical prognoses. Uh, the playwright and activist now who calls herself V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, who wrote the Vagina Monologues, is one such case. In every single one of these cases where healing, what you could call grace, really happened. Not saying this was the cause, but it's a common feature of the story. A person completely reconfigured their identity. They allowed their calamity the catastrophe, which actually is not a negative term if you look at the original meaning in Greek, to take them deep inside of who they thought they were and bust out of it and let go of a cherished part of their identity. I'm a nice person. I'm a people pleaser. I'm quiet. I I don't have a voice. My anger isn't valid. I'm only valuable if I'm impressing the world. Uh, everyone's needs are valid except mine. These are core parts of people's identity. Identity, the word identify comes from the Latin meaning to make the same as. And we make ourselves the same as something and then we cling to it and we don't know who we would be without it. Um, so, and then there's been studies by Harvard researchers that show that again, in all cases of spontaneous remission, there's a, a book by a, doctor named Jeffrey Rediger, I think. Maybe it's called Cured, I forget. But in every single one of these cases of spontaneous remission, not just anecdotally in my dad's interviews, but in research, involves some kind of major shift in the relationship to the self. And so that's always required when healing is what we want. And that's why it's so damn hard because, man, our identities do a lot of work for us. They keep us feeling safe, familiar, oriented. They keep us feeling a sense of community, which is a sort of pseudo community with everyone who agrees with our identity, who validates it or who shares it, which is ultimately cold comfort, but it's all people expect. It's all people know. So um, yeah, there's tremendous power 
to disidentifying from and really just expanding your identity to include what's been there, but to, to not be yoked to it. Yeah, identity is the conspiracy. <laughs> it's, it's the, conspiracy. the what, sorry? There's, it's the conspiracy that there's a person named Marlowe that has these right. characteristics that were shaped in this way, you know. Well, you've uh, heard of Hofstetter, yeah, well, right? Douglas Hofstetter and the, the idea of the strange loop. Uh, I think I have, have, but I'm not well acquainted. He's the one who wrote uh, Gödel Escherbach, you know, about these three uh, thinkers and artists who who basically deconstructed the what was thought to be kind of solid, and that ultimately Mm. the 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 self is nothing more than a recursive loop of self fulfilling prophecies and self confirming biases and unexamined internally logical, but completely externally absurd working theories. There is no solid self. There is no Marlowe. There is no Daniel in reality, but we can certainly live as if there is, as long as we, you know, let go, you know, we just have to not be attached. We have to not have attachments, not have ex- expectations. Well, because life, and, you know. life will ultimately, whether we identify fiercely or not and struggle fiercely or not, rob us, thieve us, burgle us of our identifications and our attachments. It's called death. You can't take it with you, not just money and cars and success, but identity. You can't. It's over. And um, a life well lived, I think, and a life that can contribute to a better future for all is one where we wear our identities loosely enough to be able to breathe in them and consider other possibilities. That is so weightlifting. I love that that take. Uh, you can't take your identity with you, so stop trying so hard to curate it, and also just to please, you know, uh, arbitrary societal standards. Amanda, I love what you just. I mean, that gives me. I love plays on words that reveal hidden meanings, and you just said that is so weightlifting. Well, what does weightlifting usually mean? It means being able to bear heavy loads and get underneath it and lift it, right? Right. But, and that's part of it. But it's also some. But you, when you have a spotter or someone lifting the weight, then you have support, and it's not so hard to weight lift. So I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna incorporate that if if you don't mind into my identity, my te- oh, no, my temporary do. contingent, <laughs> loosely held identity as a mental chiropractor is part of what I'm doing is weight lifting, lifting the weight off so people can lift the weight. Awesome. Yeah, go for it. Thanks. I mean, that's what we're here to do: is exchange things and move forward. The deepest solidarity for everyone marching, everyone fighting, everyone protesting all around the world. But I can't help but get jaded by the expressions that protest finds itself making demands of a system that does not care for us, that does not listen to us, that we have no say over because we have no power. And so it's a great comment, Tori said, we're great at mobilizing, we're not very good at organizing. Mobilization is temporary and fleeting, it feels good, it fills you up. You can say, ah, I was there, brother. What are you doing today? What are we doing today? Organization is what we're lacking. Organization is permanent, or at least continually growing. Organization is there after the protest is over. All of these people, all of these people could be gathering together, sharing their resources, forming a network, making decisions about these issues together. Not just saying we're against the bad thing together, but saying we are for a different sort of society that is, is us, that we are. If all these people came together 
and pull their resources. Free Palestine! If we all come together with that energy for creation, not just resistance, we will build the new world and the old will become obsolete. The great Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. He said, what we settle for is exactly the amount of suffering they will impose upon us. But I say, demands without power are just wishes. So until we build power and redirect this energy into creation, construction, well, we need to take more steps to get there. And also we are here from Italy. We want to say to you one important message. If you say that you are behind Israel, you are behind terrorism. Israel is the big terrorist. The 600 children under now the rocks. They are saying one word. Palestine, Palestine. We will have our land. The story will be like that.